All right. Well, hey, we are, we are making our way through the book of Revelation. Um, I said to somebody uh, outside today after, after first service that if, I had, if it wasn't for Christmas, I would probably take this one more month. But, you know, it's, it just feels wrong to be doing Revelation during Christmas season. You know, we need, we need some Christmassy stuff around the corner. So we are planning it for some Christmassy things coming up. So we're kind of in the, the, moving our way through this, this amazing book. Uh, last week, we began to look at a period of time known as the Great Tribulation. So, by the way, today, this is going to be way more teachy than it is sermony, if that makes sense. So, uh, I'm going to be using this whiteboard right here uh, to create, you know, kind of give us some visual of, of what's happening here in the book of Revelation. So, we saw that the Tribulation is not just a moment in time that precedes the end times. The tribulation is something that you can say that that is part of this age. So if we look at like history's timeline, here I'll make the earth. There we go. I'm gonna do, my art is gonna be, my guarantee you, my art is going to be this much better than the art was in the first service, which doesn't say much. I'm going to make an attempt. So here's the creation, or here's the time, history's timeline, right? Over here, we're going to call this the kingdom of God in its fullest. That looks like a Burger King crown, but that is King Jesus' crown. All right? Here we have, at some point in the beginning, this is the fall, so we'll make a little break. And that's the fall. Right there. So John says uh, this in Revelation 1, 9, the very beginning of the book in the English Standard Version. He says, I, John, your brother, and this is partner in the, the tribulation. I, John, brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So John, he clearly sees that this time that we are living in as Christians Beyond the cross, right here, we'll say that's the anchoring point of history. He says, this is a time of tribulation in which he says that he is a partner with for this age. So tribulations are a defining feature of the age. Now, if, if not, then how could, if this was only reserved for a tiny little window, you know, this tiny little period right before the second coming of Jesus, how can John, who lived and died almost 2,000 years ago, say he's a partner in the tribulation? He couldn't, unless the tribulation is a defining feature of all of the age. But John does clearly see that this is culminating in future events that will move towards the end when the kingdom of God comes in its fullest. So to best understand the three visions that, we, that you see in this book, as I mentioned last week, is to see them like you would an art piece, right, in an, in an art exhibit. Each is individually unique, but at the same time part of the whole. So when you go into an art exhibit, if that's your thing, maybe for some of you guys that's not your thing, and so, you know, come up with a new metaphor for you. But, you know, you're, you, know you go into the museum and you, you could just stare and stop and ponder one piece, But then you get a good feel of the whole as you leave the place after having seen all of the pieces. Then you kind of talk about the exhibits as a whole. That's that's a good way to view the differing visions that we see here. Each vision overlaps with the other. And we saw last week that they converge with one another. Okay? (laughs) At the end, and there's some type of, this is a Richter scale, okay? There's some type of devastating, massive earthquake where all of the visions come together and you find themselves, no matter where you were in your tribulation, maybe you lived here, maybe you lived here, maybe you lived here, later we're going to see maybe you even lived right here. They all come together no matter where you live in this moment right here that anchors them together. They converge together and then we experience participants of what's taking place after that moment right there. So this means that John's visions, they speak to all of us in all of our tribulations, wherever you find yourself in this age, and it assures all of us 
It it assures all of us to stay awake, continue to endure, continue to be faithful to your little time and your little place because our futures come together and we together with believers in all times and places are going to receive God's eternal promise, heaven, our promised land together with one another. But what we'll see today is that if we want this, is, is there anybody that doesn't want this? <laughs> you know, maybe it's like, you know, this is not the end, and heaven is ahead of us, and there's no more tears of sorrow, only tears of joy. Have you ever laughed so much that you cried? That's the only type of tear that's going to be, that's going to exist in the next, in the age to come, you know, where all of our sorrows are wiped away, where all of the wrongs are made right by King Jesus, where this earth is, is, is renewed and transformed into the way it was always meant to be. Who wouldn't want that? All of us, we want that. But if you want that promised land, it means that you have to endure in this age to the end. There are no shortcuts. There are no escape pods. And I'll argue later that the rapture is not our escape from the tribulation, but rather all of our, and our meaning every Christian everywhere, no matter when you lived, our reward for enduring faithfully through our tribulation until the end. So I know that some people may disagree with me on this particular point, And to be honest with you, that is perfectly okay. Just make sure your viewpoint on this is grounded in scripture, not just Christian pop culture, okay? And if you would love to have a friendly debate, I love debating, seriously, I really do, as long as it's friendly. If it's not friendly, not so much. (laughs) So so that is perfectly okay, because iron sharpens iron. So I will be sharing towards the end of this why I think, why I hold the view that I hold. So there are three visions in Revelation to describe the pouring out of judgment on the earth during this time period. As I said, each is distinct and each is similar. Last week, we took some time to dive deep into the opening of the seven seals, which concludes with what happens, the shaking of the earth, and then the coming of the kingdom of God. We see in 8, verse 4 through 5, that it's the prayers of God's people, the incense of worship that rise up to God. Remember, under the altar are the martyred, those who had been slain because of their testimony of Jesus. And what are they doing? They're crying out for vengeance. Is that a very Christian thing to do? (laughs) Well, they're doing it because it was injustice in their life that their life was ended. So they're crying out because they know God is the one whose vengeance belongs to. So they're crying out for justice. They're praying for vengeance. and And it's that that rises up and initiates the judgment that comes with the trumpets and eventually the bulls. So remember, last week, We saw those people praying, and that's what initiates it. So John goes on then to see two distinct visions of judgment that come upon the earth in response to the cries of his oppressed people. His people who've been trampled in this life, he's responding to that. He sees, so we see, John sees seven angels blowing seven trumpets. We see that in chapters 8 through 11. And we're not going to dive deep like we did last week with the seals. I would encourage you this week to take some time to do so. We see in these trumpets that these are partial judgments on the earth where the, a third of the earth is affected. I don't know if, again, numbers can oftentimes, more oftentimes, be symbolic in Revelation. So it could mean that it is going, it, 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 the, 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 the judgment increases, but it's still not total in its nature. It might be that, or maybe it is literal, one-third of the earth is affected. Then he sees seven angels pouring out bowls of wrath on the earth in chapter 16, which then we see is total judgment on the earth because the whole earth is struck. This seems to be reserved for the final and great tribulation. So I'm going to draw, I'm not doing this first service, I'm going to draw a sweet little trumpet here. Okay? And then then I'm also going to draw a bowl. Okay. So we see these things happening. Trumpets could be, honestly, the trumpet blast could be happening like this. As we saw, the seals were happening like this, and it could be, the, but it seems as though the bowls are just before 
because the bulls are are total in nature, if there's nobody left, right, then it doesn't seem, if if they were poured out here, there'd be nobody left to go on. So it seems like, okay, that's definitely seems like that is reserved for the end, capital T, capital E. So both of the visions now are reminiscent of something. When we read these visions, you'll be like, hey, I remember this. This is, this is familiar to me. These are reminiscent of the plagues that fell on Egypt. And why did God pour out the plagues on Egypt? Because he was judging Egypt. He was responding to something. And that's the cries of his people. The Exodus story begins with the God who hears the cries of the oppressed crying out, for salvation, crying out for deliverance. So here now, what we see in the Exodus story, God judging Egypt, you can call Egypt Babylon if you want, and judging Pharaoh in response to those cries. So in these bowls and trumpets, you see here, we see hail and and fire fall from the sky. We see water turn to blood. And anytime you see water turn to blood anywhere in scripture, it should always draw your thoughts back to the Exodus story. We see locusts, but they're not just locusts, like demon locusts. And they aren't eating plants that eat. They're biting people and causing horrible sores on people. We see demon frogs coming out of the Nile River. We see people getting boils. We see darkness fall over all the land. And we see a whole lot of death in these particular judgments. Now, this is significant because it says that the Exodus story It foreshadows and speaks to a greater exodus, the one in which Christian believers are a part of, the story of Revelation. So, for example, we see something else. We see all three visions end with a catastrophic earthquake, and then there's the coming of the kingdom of God in a very distinct way. In 7.5, it says this, The angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar, and he hurled it onto the earth, and there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This is at the end of the seals. 11, talking about the trumpets. Then God, God's temple in heaven was opened, and with this temple we see the Ark of the Covenant. And there came what? Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and earthquake and a severe hailstorm. 6.18, talking about the bulls. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done! What did we see? Flashes of lightning! rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. So all of these things converging right here, and we're seeing, the world seeing and experiencing the same thing. So what's the significance of this? After the plagues of Egypt, the children of Israel enter into the wilderness where they come face to face with God at Mount Sinai. In Exodus 19, let me read this to us. We just listened, read Revelation. We just heard that. Now let's listen to Exodus story, <clears throat> 16 through 19. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to what? To meet with God. To meet with God, that's the purpose. That's always the purpose. That's, that's why God desi- created us in the first place, to, to meet with him, to be with him. And so we see in this story that that's exactly what's taking place and that coming to Mount Sinai in this majestic moment. Then it says, Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. So they experienced an earthquake. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. So this means, so there's something happening here. This means that the Exodus becomes a paradigm in which we understand what's happening to us. Oh, This is what's taking place. We we see this happen here, and this is what's happening here in a greater level and to a greater degree. In both accounts, God responds to the cries of his people. In both accounts, God supernaturally protects his people from his wrath. And this is one of the things that made the Egyptians hate the Israelites. 
They were getting all these sores and festers and the, Egypt, and the Israelites weren't. In, in Egypt, the town of Goshen where the Israelites lived, there was darkness in all the land except for this town of Goshen where the Israelites lived. So, I mean, you see this taking place. You see God protecting his people even while he's pouring out his wrath and judgment against his, his people's oppressors. In both accounts, God's people are spared from death. Why? Because of the blood of a lamb. Exactly what we see in Revelation that we are victorious because of the blood of a lamb poured out for us. The reason why death passed over the Egyptians, the blood of a lamb, the reason why we make it through anything we make through because of the blood of a lamb. In both accounts, the shaking of the earth and the blowing of trumpets ushering God's presence among his people. He is the God. Now notice this, they get through the wilderness and in a short amount of time, God doesn't say, Poof, I'm going to take you all to heaven where I live. That doesn't happen. The text says he descends to them. He joins them in their life. He joins them in the deliverance of their, from their sufferings. He is the God who descends to be with us. And in both accounts, we are led out of our current bondage and led into the promised land. So with this in mind, we must remember that in order to get to the promised land, you got to get through Egypt. you got to endure Babylon. You have to make it through Rome. You have to endure through whatever it is you are called to endure through to make it to the end. And unfortunately, there's a lot to endure in this life. See, these visions are one layer of the story. And so far, we haven't seen so much as to why these judgments are poured out upon the earth. So what's happening down here that brought all of this upon the world? What is it that moved God so much that he would, he would pour this kind of judgment onto the earth? So what we see next, and I'll paraphrase most of this for time's sake today. What comes next after this vision of the trumpets is an interlude that tells the story of Jesus, the church, and Satan in a very Greco-Roman way. So this is like an anchoring point, the center of the book of Revelation, to make sense of everything that's going on. So it's a narrative, and it uses symbolic imagery to lift the curtain of, for us to be able to see the root reason why the church is suffering in any generation. So whether you are at the end suffering, or you're here suffering, or you're here suffering, you're able to look back and go, oh yeah, that's right. We're suffering right now because of this. Jesus told us this was going to happen. So in this story, a woman who represents Israel, she's pregnant with a son. It says that she's wrapped with the sun and the moon and 12 stars, which is a wink back to Genesis chapter 37. So this woman uh, represents Israel. And then suddenly an enormous red dragon comes out and attempts to devour the child when he's born. But the red dragon fails. Why does the red dragon fail? Revelation 12, 5 says this. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Now, interesting, what happened when Jesus was born? Caesar, or Herod, tried to have Jesus exterminated before he can grow into the, into the, king, the king he is supposed to be. Remember the story from Matthew, that when Herod found out that Jesus the king was born, he didn't like that, so he had the boys in the, all throughout the region uh, killed of a particular age. But Jesus and his family escaped down to Egypt. We'll ponder this in the coming weeks at Christmas time. But you see here, it says that Jesus is snatched up to God and to his throne. Now, John, this is, that's the story of Jesus in one sentence. He came. He is now king, he rules with an iron scepter, and he has ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father. And John saw this, he says, guys, I saw this. This was chapter five. He says he's sitting at the center of the throne and he is a slain lamb. He is the lion of Judah. But then what happens next in the story is war breaks out in heaven against the dragon and against the dragon's fallen angels that he took along with him. The dragon loses, duh, and he's hurled down to earth because of, and because of his defeat. So here is the dragon, and this is my, this is my, 
So it looks a little more like a demon cat with a mustache. <laughs> but you get the point. So Jesus ascended to the throne of the Father. Satan is hurled down to earth. Now, I'm not going to argue with you. We're outside of time in heaven. This could have been here. You can make an argument that it's here. I don't know. I will be honest. But this is what happened. Either way, Satan is hurled down to earth because of the victory of Jesus. So we see next in the story that there is great celebrating in heaven because the one who stood before God and accused man to God is no longer there. He has been kicked out of the heavenly courtroom. So you do not have an accuser standing before God accusing you of your sins anymore. Now we see that it's the Son, Jesus, who now sits at the right hand of the Father, who defends God's people, those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb to the Father. So there is no more accusations against us in heaven. The dragon realizes that he has been defeated and that he only has a short time left before he is destroyed. So what do we see in the story? 12.17 says this, Then the dragon was enraged at the woman, and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. People who believe it and people who live it, people who show it and express this kingdom reality that Jesus Christ is indeed king with our lives, with our words. So it's as if John is saying in the story from this vision, he says, guys, this explains what we're going through. This right here. The, the persecution and the tribulation that we are experiencing is the affliction of an angry, defeated enemy whose sole purpose with his existence now is to drag as many of God's creation into hell with him as he possibly can. So it doesn't matter who the puppet of the moment is. Satan, the great dragon, is always behind the persecution of the church. 100% of the time. He may, he may uh, not be there to accuse us before God now, like he was before. And we read that with Job, in the story of Job. He's in the throne room. He accuses Job of being faithless, that God has just blessed him too much. And if God took away his blessing, he would fall away. So we see this kind of accusation going on in the story of Job. So he's not there to accuse us before God, but now we see he's turned us to the world's courts. And we see that play out again and again and again in the lives of those who are persecuted. People who, I mean, why are Christians persecuted? As a whole, they're good people. I mean, you're like, how dare you love people well? Off with your head. I mean, why would somebody even utter something like that? Why would somebody even care to kill somebody that proclaims the name of Jesus, who is a great neighbor to all and loves people and loves the world around them, unless they were demonically charged by something else? And this is that lifting of the curtain. And this is exactly what Paul says. In Ephesians 6, 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Keeping that in mind, people around us are not our enemies. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, the spiritual realm. So if this is a spiritual battle, which it is, and it's played out in the physical world, then that means there's only one way to win in this battle. Revelation 12, 11 has told us, talking about those who overcome, it says they triumphed over him, speaking of Satan, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So this means that even in this life, as heat is turned up against God's people in the world, we are not to withdraw from the world. We are not to shrink back, but to engage all the more as witnesses of the one who now reigns. So our purpose, our mission in life is to counter the work of the dragon, to, to bring as many people with us into this heaven rea heavenly reality that awaits us. Not just hole up and wait until it happens but to be on the offense against the spiritual forces that are deceiving people in this life, even if it comes at a great cost to our own selves. Do you notice who wins? 
People that are not, that did not love their lives so much to shrink from death, but people who are willing to sacrifice, people who are willing to push in to witness, to, to witness for Jesus. The more victorious the church becomes in our sacrifice, the more we will win in our current battles against Satan here and now. So we must remember who the enemy is. Got to remember. Believe it or not, it's not that super annoying coworker. It's not. Believe it or not, it's not the jerk neighbor. It's not. Believe it or not, it's not a politician. <gasps> Believe it or not, he has spoken to us. It is the dragon. It's Satan, the deceiver of people in this life. And it's our job to be proud, bold witnesses for Jesus that they may see that too. And then it goes on. The story continues in chapter 13. I'll read this part. Then the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns, and each head had a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but it had feet like those of a bear and a mouth of that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his powers and his, and his throne and great authority. Now, isn't that interesting? I didn't say this in first service, but what did Satan try to do with Jesus? Didn't Satan try to do the same thing? Didn't Satan say, if you bow, if you worship me, I'll give you a throne? If you bow and worship me, I will give you great authority? But Jesus rebuked him. He stood strong, and in that moment, he defeated him. But we see this here, the dragon, the, the beast takes this throne. He takes this authority given from the dragon. Verse three, one of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshiped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshiped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? Now, this is a parallel of Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel sees a vision of four demonic beast-like creatures who come up out of the waters, they blaspheming God, and they wage war against God's people. So these beasts represent four different kingdoms, different, represent different kingdoms of the world. But now in John's vision, this beast is a mix of all four that Daniel sees, showing that the demonic powers are escalating as life moves towards the end. So the beast's power now is so great, it's so mighty, it's so, it's so in some sense, you know, breathtaking, puts you in awe of how powerful it is. The world steps back and says, who can compare? Who can stand against it? And when you start asking those questions, what's your response typically? It's way easier to just get along to go along. It's way easier, and this was Rome's secret weapon. They were mighty in power and strength and force, and if they can get people to see, why fight against what is inevitable? Join us and you will have peace. Worship our God, our emperor, and there will be joy in the land. We are offering that to you. Why would you possibly want to resist that? Because look at everybody else who stood against us and what happened to them. So people are seeing this power, this mind, they're saying, who can stand against it? Well, the answer is also found in Daniel chapter 7. So John's readers of this vision would be familiar with this. Listen to 13 through 15. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So what is Daniel pointing to that John is answering this question? Who can stand against him? Jesus! Jesus can stand against the beast, which points us to the end of this book. When Jesus returns, he defeats his enemy with his breath. <sighs> Gone, done. That, that's how weak 
The enemy really is. There's lifting of the curtain. In this life, we see powers of this world that seem so great. They so, seem so inevitable. They seem so powerful and, un, and unstoppable. And when Jesus comes back, he literally breathes on them. They just have to lift a finger. And they melt before him. See, Jesus can stand against the beast. It's not even a fair fight. John's vision reminds us of this, that even at, at its worst, we are still dealing with a defeated enemy. No matter how powerful the enemy may seem in the moment, it is still a defeated enemy. So we have to remember this because both Daniel and Revelation go on to say that the beast is going to wage war against God's people and it will conquer them for a short time. 7 through 8 of chapter 13. It was given authority to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lord who was slain from the creation of the world. And that's interesting. I can make a whole sermon probably on this. We won't get too much in it, but did you catch that last part? He was slain at the when? At the foundations of the world. Meaning Jesus is everybody's hope. Not just people after the cross, but before the cross. Everybody's hope is found in Jesus, no matter which tribulation you find yourself going through. And from our perspective at times, it will feel as if all hope is lost. And God forbid that happens to us in our time and place. But if it does, there will be this temptation to think that this is inevitable. There is no more hope. All hope is lost when we look at what's taking place in this life around us. And the world will worship the beast because of its strength and its power. And the temptation will be to join them, to be swept away in this inevitability of the beast's power. But this is what Revelation is here for. To, to gird us up, to strengthen us once again. 13.10 says this. After the, the church is going to be attacked by the beast, it'll wage war on them. It will, it will even conquer them for a time. And then 13.10 says this. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on part of God's people. Endurance and faithfulness. That no matter what is going on, we are steadfast because we can look beyond the physical and see to the spiritual what has been foretold to us. So question, why must, why must we endure if we've been raptured before the beasts wage war against us? See, if there's a pre-trib rapture, then why, do we, why are we called to endure? Why are we called to have patience? I mean, that'd be like Christmas, Christmas leading up to Christmas, you tell your little kids, be patient, be patient. But on Christmas morning, you say, the time of patience is done. Open your gifts, enjoy, celebrate. You know, when they're opening their gift, imagine how confused they'd be. They're opening their gift and say, hey, be patient. They're like, what am I doing? I'm not, I don't know what to do. You, know, you wouldn't need it anymore because you are now past the point of patience. So why would we need to be called to patiently endure in faithfulness if we're not here? So let's hang on to that thought for a moment. Verses 11 through 15. We see a second beast. I mean, it's like, now there's two? Oh, come on. As if one was enough, you know? A second beast now is risen up. This one doesn't come out of the sea. This one comes out of the earth. And the second beast speaks from Satan. It says it speaks from the dragon to exalt the beast for the first beast for the purpose of deceiving people. It will be convincing, but it will still be a sham. It's power ultimately, even if, if it's real signs and wonders or it's just a big hoax, it's still demonically fueled. John's first audience would have likely had the imperial priesthood in mind because it's not like Domitian was walking around cutting people's heads off, right? You know, Domitian was the beast. He was the one they were saying to worship. The imperial priesthood would be the ones who'd be carrying this out, saying, if you don't worship our king, our emperor as Lord and God, if you don't worship, bow to his statue, then there will be a price to pay in which will enact and it will be your life. 
So John's first audience would have pictured this. So this beast makes claims that the first beast was mortally wounded and yet lived. This beast makes claims to have breathed life into the first beast statue in order to gain people's adoration to worship the statue of the beast. This beast could even make fire appear to come out of, out of heaven as if he was the prophet Elijah. The point is their power might be impressive. You might see something and go, whoa. That seems so mighty, it seems so real. But if it does not glorify Jesus, it is deception. If it does not glorify the Father, it is a big lie. And Jesus promised this would happen in Matthew 24, 24. Jesus warned that false prophets would come and they would perform signs and wonders and to not be deceived, but what appears to be demonstrations of power. But know what the source is coming from. It does not exalt God the Father and Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit, then it is not from God. Shortly after the book of Revelation was written, the mission's priests began to put to death anybody who would not worship a statue of the emperor. They built this giant tall statue in order to honor Domitian. And they said, if you do not worship the statue, you'll die. This is familiar. I mean, this is like Satan's an old hack. He did this in Daniel's time in Babylon. And the same thing is playing out. It's the same song, new story, right? We see this in Babylon. We see this now in Rome. I'm sure it'll happen again to some degree in our future. I'm sure it'll ha- it's happened somewhere else that we just don't know about. Satan is constantly just replaying the old act again and again. And then it goes on to say in 16 through 18. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number, any guesses? Six, six, six. See, once again, John's audience, who are reading this for the first time, they would not be stumped by this. The Roman Agora was an open-air shopping center where everybody would go to buy and sell goods from all over the world. In Ephesus during this time, Ephesus was a port city that would have received goods from literally all over the known world at that particular time. Where then traders would come from Rome, all of that stuff would be imported and exported into Rome and into the world, and there was buku bucks to be made, okay? At that particular time of Domitian, you had to pay a tribute to the emperor Domitian as God by burning an incense in order to buy or sell in the Agora. If you would not, it's fine. Just can't buy or sell. Good luck feeding your kids. All you have to do is light the incense. It's no big deal. Historians also believe that they would have marked your hand with some type of dye to show that you had the privilege to be able to buy or sell because you paid tribute to Domitian. So now this is like, this is what's going on here. This is real people's livelihood. This is real people's hungry kids. And if you remember back at the beginning of this book to the calls to the churches, the people like the Nicolaitans and the, the, Je- the woman with the Jezebel spirit and the ba- guy with the Balaam spirit saying, it's all right. I mean, it's just, we all know this is just phony baloney. Domitian's not a real God. Just burn the incense. Get the mark. Go shop. Do what you need to do because God doesn't care. Now we're saying, wait, no, 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 no. This is serious stuff in this time and place. And John is saying, don't do it. To bow your knee to the mission is to bow your knee to the beast. To bow your knee to the beast is to bow your knee to Satan, the dragon himself. That number 666, it adds up to the emperor Nero's name in Hebrew numerological alphabet. Every letter in the alphabet held a numeric value. The only problem with this is Nero has been dead for, you know, a couple decades at this point. It's like, well, you know, why, why is it a dead guy? 
There was this myth going around that Nero would be resurrected again and he was going to come back and wreak havoc on Rome and the church. Nero was the first emperor to start to persecute the the church. And John is saying that Nero was a beast whom others would come in the spirit of. In the same way people believed that someone was coming in the spirit of Elijah before, the, before Jesus would come, before the Messiah would come. And John is now saying someone will come in the spirit of Nero and it will happen again and again and again and again until the very end when Jesus comes and not only destroys the beast and all beasts, but also the one who is behind him, the dragon. So this comes to our question now. When will our time of relief come? When does that rapture happen? And we're wrapping up with these thoughts, so bear with me, hang with me. Matthew 24, 29 through 32. Immediately after the stress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. So when is this? When does Jesus say this is going to happen? Immediately after the distress of those days, not before the distress of those days, after the distress. What days? The days of tribulation, the great tribulation, the moment when all of our stories converge together. The earth is shook at the converging point of the sixth seal, the sixth trumpet, the seventh bowl, and then it says Jesus comes back. So what happens? A final trumpet is sounded and his people are gathered together with him. And this is not a secret coming. It's not a and then we go poof and everybody's like, where'd they go? I don't know. That's weird. It's like a Marvel movie. Let's just live on our lives and try to figure out how to live without them. That's not what happens. It says here that they will see him coming. They will see. They will look and see him come in power and glory. If you can't see Jesus, how can you say he's coming in power and glory? Revelation 1-7 begins the book with this saying, look, He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Every eye at that trumpet blast will see him. Chapter 19, which we'll go into more depths in the weeks to come, makes this absolutely clear too. This puts our blessed hope after we go through hell on earth, not before, but it gets better. All believers everywhere, in all time, get to participate in this moment, not just those who happen to find themselves living in the end. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, hang on to that, that word coming, that's significant, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep, meaning have died, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and after that we who are still alive and who are left will be caught up, that's the word raptured, will be raptured together with them where in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. So the dead in Christ arisen the mo- that moment with the trumpet blast. So you could have died here, or here, or here. But when that trumpet blast, boom, boom, you're here joining the party. We're all together. Your great, great grandma who you love so much that would do nothing but knit and pray for you. You guys are going to be celebrating Jesus together, together. See, remember, our timelines converge at this point. So everybody who has faithfully endured to the end, every one of them will be included and no one will be left out. 1 Corinthians 15, 52, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, not the first trumpet, when, the, when all the judgment starts to get poured out, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So Paul says the last trumpet. Now this last bit, this word coming, 
It means parousia in the Greek, but this isn't just any word. This isn't like, hey, Jason is, you know, Jason's coming, he's on his way. Okay. You know, everybody would say, oh, they're, 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 they're making their way here, they'll be here in about an hour. All right. When this word parousia is used, this is a word described to describe the royal visit of a king. In their context, it would have been the emperor. So when an emperor would come to, say, Ephesus, what would happen? Delegates would join the emperor in their final leg of their journey into the city. So they would be on watch. They would know the emperor's coming. They'd say, the emperor's on his way. He's a mile off. And people would rush out to meet him. They would get to the emperor, and it would be like a parade, a party, a celebration that would welcome him in as they roll out the red carpet. There would be loud shouts of joy. There would be trumpet blasts. There would be a great procession to be able to tell everybody in the city, the emperor, the king is here. He's joining us in our city. Rejoice. And that's the picture that we see. When Paul says, we will join him, he is coming. There is a parousia where we will join Jesus, King Jesus, in his final leg of his journey. Chapter 19, we see that we are also part of his great army, but we really don't have to do anything because, as I said earlier, he just breathes on his enemies and they're gone. But what is Jesus doing? He's coming back to earth to transform and renew and restore not just us, but his creation. He's ushering us into that promised land that he has told us about. He is renewing this place (coughs) to make make it fit for us for an absolute eternity together with him. So remember the Exodus. He's the God who descends to be with us. That's what he does. That's who he is. There's a worship team wants to come up right now. I'd like us to close with this. And let's go ahead and stand to our feet. I'd like us to close with a call to endure. Faithful endurance is the word that the Lord speaks to his people. Wherever you are in this timeline, whatever is taking place in your life. You see, we may, may or may not come face to face with the beast, that final antichrist figure that opposes God's and his church, fueled by the dragon. But we've already been told, we've already seen that there are little beasts that we will have to face. And they're all doing the exact same thing, trying to deceive us trying to pull us and draw our lives away from the coming kingdom, the kingdom that is here in our lives and the kingdom that's on its way with Jesus, that, that, that subtle lull to move away in, in our values and in our, in, in our character and the way we live just so we can go along to get along. It's the same story. It's just a different chapter. And so God is saying to his church, wake up, church. Remember who you are. Endure in faithfulness. Don't listen to the lies of the enemy. Whatever those lies of that beast in your life may be, maybe it's a beast of addiction that you think is bigger than even God because you can't lick it yet. And God would say to you, shrink it in Jesus' name. Lift the curtain so you can see how small it is so that your life, would you be free from that, from that addiction that has bound you so you could be free in this life to be the witness you're called to be. Maybe it's body image. And you're, you're, you're never satisfied with, with, within your own skin. I don't know. Whatever that thing is, it's constantly drawing you away from the Spirit of God. It's deceiving you in subtle ways and just moving you slower and slower and away from God. God would say to you today to see with his eyes what real power is. And once you see real power in Jesus' name, to do what you need to do in the name of Jesus, the spirit of the living God, to live in the faithfulness and endurance that you are called to do. You may not feel like you have it in you right now. You may have even been hearing me and going, I don't even know if I believe any of this. It sounds too good to be true. But Jesus would say, you're going to have to bet on a horse. At some point, you're going to have to bet on a horse because to not to bet is to bet. And why is the world sad when they see Jesus? Because they realize they bet on the wrong horse. At some point, you're going to have to settle this in your heart. 
And Jesus would say to you today, lift the curtain, see true power, see true love in your life, see a mighty hand of God that delivers you from whatever it is, the beast of your life that would cause you to bow your knee before it instead of King Jesus in your life. So what is that for you? And I know once again I was long-winded today. And I'm sorry for that. But I pray that fatigue would not stop you from this moment right now where you would respond to what the Spirit would say to you. So I'm going to pray right now. And as the worship team plays, I would encourage you to use your chair as an altar. If you would like prayer, I'll be over here. You can grab somebody and say, please pray with me. And they'll pray for you too, whatever. This is a church family. This is what we do. Let's pray for one another, strengthen one another, that we would find faithfulness and endurance as we leave this place today. So Lord, we we have um, drank from a fire hose today. But Lord, I pray that every one of us in here would see that there is a big picture, there is a big plan that you are God and you are God alone and you sit at the right hand of the Father and the enemy is already defeated and the suffering and the tribulation we go through in this life is the result of a defeated enemy trying to take as many people with him as he possibly can. So Lord, whatever happens to us, I pray that we would be faithful to be found as the people who are not even afraid to shrink from death if need be. That we would be renewed in our faithfulness and in our endurance. That we would be willing to sacrifice whatever is necessary in this life. That we wouldn't just make it to the end, but we would take as many people with us as we possibly can. That we would counteract the work of the great dragon who deceives the people of this world. That we would be strong and mighty in the faith. Because we serve a king who can never be defeated. We serve a king whose breath will melt his enemies. God, I pray that you would renew us right now in whatever beast we stand before today. Whether or not we'll see the end time beast that persecutes the church, there are brothers and sisters around the world right now who are facing their end time beasts, who are putting them to death because of their love for you, Jesus. We pray for strength and endurance for them. But whatever that is for us in our time and place, I pray, Jesus, the strength to not bow our knee to it. It might seem small, but it is deadly. And I pray that we would have courage to stand in faithfulness no matter what. So God, breathe your spirit into your people afresh and anew today. That we may be faithful and that we may endure in Jesus' name. In your mighty and wonderful, precious name we pray. Amen. Alrighty, let's use this time right now together to seek the Lord together, to be strengthened together.